0: Drama on 1
1: Sundays at 8 p.m. rte.ie/drama on 1 Drama on 1
0: This is RTÉ Radio 1 as we continue our season of summer Sundays with the RTÉ Players dramatization of the stories of James Joyce's Dubliners. Tonight we're going to broadcast two masterpieces in miniature, A Painful Case and A Mother. Mr. James Duffy from Chapel Lizard is regular in his habits and orderly in a rather adventureless life. One night at the opera, he meets and forms an unexpected bond with Mrs. Emily Sinico. But despite the exhilaration of finding a soul companion, Mr. Duffy believes that every bond is a bond to sorrow. This is A Painful Case by James Joyce.
2: Mr. James Duffy lived in Chapel Lizard, because he wished to live as far as possible from the city of which he was a citizen, and because he found all the other suburbs of Dublin mean, modern, and pretentious. He lived in an old, sombre house, and from his windows he could look into the disused distillery, or upwards along the shallow river on which Dublin is built. The lofty walls of his uncarpeted room were free from pictures he had himself bought every article of furniture in the room a black iron bedstead an iron washstand four cane chairs a clothes rack a coal scuttle a fender and irons and a square table on which lay a double desk a bookcase had been made in an alcove by means of shelves of white wood the bed was clothed with white bedclothes and a black and scarlet rug covered the foot a little hand mirror hung above the washstand and during the day a white-shaded lamp stood as the sole ornament of the mantelpiece. The books on the white wooden shelves were arranged from below upwards according to bulk. A complete Wordsworth stood at one end of the lowest shelf, and a copy of the Maynooth Catechism, sewn into the cloth cover of a notebook, stood at one end of the top shelf. Writing materials were always on the desk. In the desk lay a manuscript translation of Houtman's Michael Kramer the stage directions of which were written in purple ink, and a little sheaf of papers held together by a brass pin. In these sheets a sentence was inscribed from time to time, and in an ironical moment the headline of an advertisement for bile beans had been pasted onto the first sheet. On lifting the lid of the desk a faint fragrance escaped, the fragrance of new cedarwood pencils or of a bottle of gum or of an overripe apple which might have been left there and forgotten. Mr. Duffy abhorred anything which betokened physical or mental disorder. A medieval doctor would have called him Saturnine. His face, which carried the entire tale of his years, was of the brown tint of Dublin streets. On his long and rather large head grew dry black hair, and a tawny moustache did not quite cover an unamiable mouth. His cheekbones also gave his face a harsh character. But there was no harshness in the eyes, which, looking at the world from under their tawny eyebrows, gave the impression of a man ever alert to greet a redeeming instinct in others, but often disappointed. He lived at a little distance from his body, regarding his own acts with doubtful side-glances, he had an odd autobiographical habit which led him to compose in his mind from time to time a short sentence about himself, containing a subject in the third person and a predicate in the past tense. He never gave alms to beggars, and walked firmly, carrying a stout hazel. He had been for many years cashier of a private bank in Bagot Street. Every morning he came in from Chapel Lizard by tram, At midday he went to Dan Burke's and took his lunch, a bottle of lager beer and a small trayful of arrowroot biscuits. At four o'clock he was set free. He dined in an eating-house in Georgia Street where he felt himself safe from the society of Dublin's gilded youth and where there was a certain plain honesty in the bill of fare. His evenings were spent either before his landlady's piano or roaming about the outskirts of the city. His liking for Mozart's music brought him sometimes to an opera or a concert. These were the only dissipations of his life. He had neither companions nor friends, church nor creed. He lived his spiritual life without any communion with others, visiting his relatives at Christmas and escorting them to the cemetery when they died. He performed these two social duties for old dignity's sake, but conceded nothing further to the conventions which regulate the civic life. He allowed himself to think that in certain circumstances he would rob his bank, but as these circumstances never arose, his life rolled out evenly, an adventureless tale. One evening he found himself sitting beside two ladies in the rotunda. The house, thinly peopled and silent, gave distressing prophecy of failure. The lady who sat next him looked round at the deserted house once or twice and then said,
1: What a pity there is such a poor house tonight. It's so hard on people to have to sing to empty benches.
2: He took the remark as an invitation to talk. He was surprised that she seemed so little awkward. While they talked, he tried to fix her permanently in his memory. When he learned that the young girl beside her was her daughter he judged her to be a year or so younger than himself. Her face, which must have been handsome, had remained intelligent. It was an oval face with strongly marked features. The eyes were very dark, blue, and steady. Their gaze began with a defiant note, but was confused by what seemed a deliberate swoon of the pupil into the iris, revealing for an instant a temperament of great sensibility. The pupil reasserted itself quickly, this half-disclosed nature fell again under the reign of prudence, and her astrakhan jacket, moulding a bosom of certain fullness, struck the note of defiance more definitely. He met her again a few weeks afterwards at a concert in Earlsford Terrace, and seized the moments when her daughter's attention was diverted to become intimate. She alluded once or twice to her husband, but her tone was not such as to make the illusion a warning. Her name was Mrs Sinico. Her husband's great-great-grandfather had come from Leghorn. Her husband was captain of a mercantile boat plying between Dublin and Holland, and they had one child. Meeting her a third time by accident, he found courage to make an appointment. She came. This was the first of many meetings. They met always in the evening, and chose the most quiet quarters for their walks together. Mr. Duffy, however, had a distaste for underhand ways, and finding that they were compelled to meet stealthily, he forced her to ask him to her house. Captain Sinico encouraged his visits, thinking that his daughter's hand was in question. He had dismissed his wife so sincerely from his gallery of pleasures that he did not suspect that anyone else would take an interest in her. As the husband was often away and the daughter out giving music lessons, Mr. Duffy had many opportunities of enjoying the ladies' society. Neither he nor she had had any such adventure before, and neither was conscious of any incongruity. Little by little he entangled his thoughts with hers. He lent her books, provided her with ideas, shared his intellectual life with her. She listened to all. Sometimes, in return for his theories, she gave out some fact of her own life. With almost maternal solicitude, she urged him to let his nature open to the full. She became his confessor. He told her that for some time he had assisted at the meetings of an Irish socialist party, where he had felt himself a unique figure amidst a score of sober workmen in a garret lit by an inefficient oil lamp. When the party had divided into three sections, each under its own leader, and in its own garret, he had discontinued his attendances. The workmen's discussions, he said, were too timorous. The interest they took in the question of wages was inordinate. He felt that they were hard-featured realists, and that they resented an exactitude which was the product of a leisure not within their reach. No social revolution, he told her, would be likely to strike Dublin for some centuries. She asked him, why did he not write out his thoughts? For what, he asked her with careful scorn, to compete with phrase-mongers, incapable of thinking consecutively for sixty seconds, to submit himself to the criticisms of an obtuse middle class which entrusted its morality to policemen and its fine arts to impresarios? He went often to her little cottage outside Dublin, Often they spent their evenings alone. Little by little, as their thoughts entangled, they spoke of subjects less remote. Her companionship was like a warm soil about an exotic. Many times she allowed the dark to fall upon them, refraining from lighting the lamp. The dark, discreet room, their isolation, the music that still vibrated in their ears united them. This union exalted him, wore away the rough edges of his character, emotionalized his mental life. Sometimes he caught himself listening to the sound of his own voice. He thought that in her eyes he would ascend to an angelical stature, and as he attached the fervent nature of his companion more and more closely to him, he heard the strange impersonal voice which he recognised as his own, insisting on the soul's incurable loneliness. "'We cannot give ourselves,' it said. "'We are our own.' "'The end of these discourses was that one night "'during which she had shown every sign of unusual excitement, "'Mrs Sinico caught up his hand passionately "'and pressed it to her cheek. "'Mr Duffy was very much surprised. "'Her interpretation of his words disillusioned him. "'He did not visit her for a week.' Then he wrote to her, asking her to meet him. As he did not wish their last interview to be troubled by the influence of their ruined confessional, they met in a little cake shop near the park gate. It was cold autumn weather, but in spite of the cold, they wandered up and down the roads of the park for nearly three hours. They agreed to break off their intercourse. Every bond, he said, is a bond to sorrow. When they came out of the park, they walked in silence towards the tram, but here she began to tremble so violently that, fearing another collapse on her part, he bade her good quickly and left her. A few days later he received a parcel containing his books and music. Four years passed. Mr. Duffy returned to his even way of life. His room still bore witness of the orderliness of his mind, Some new pieces of music encumbered the music-stand in the lower room, and on his shelves stood two volumes by Nietzsche, Thus Spake Zarathustra, and The Gay Science. He wrote seldom in the sheaf of papers which lay in his desk. One of his sentences, written two months after his last interview with Mrs. Sinico, read, Love between man and man is impossible because there must not be sexual intercourse, and friendship between man and woman is impossible, because there must be sexual intercourse. He kept away from concerts, lest he should meet her. His father died, the junior partner of the bank retired, and still every morning he went into the city by tram, and every evening walked home from the city, after having dined moderately in Georgia Street, and read the evening paper for dessert.' One evening, as he was about to put a morsel of corned beef and cabbage into his mouth, his hand stopped. His eyes fixed themselves on a paragraph in the evening paper, which he had propped against the water carafe. He replaced the morsel of food on his plate and read the paragraph attentively. Then he drank a glass of water, pushed his plate to one side, doubled the paper down before him between his elbows and read the paragraph over and over again the cabbage began to deposit a cold, white grease on his plate. The girl came over to him to ask, was his dinner not properly cooked? He said it was very good, and ate a few mouthfuls of it with difficulty. Then he paid his bill and went out. He walked along quickly through the November twilight, his stout hazel stick striking the ground regularly, the fringe of the buff mail peeping out of a side pocket of his tight reefer overcoat. On the lonely road which leads from the Park Gate to Chapel he slackened his pace. His stick struck the ground less emphatically and his breath issuing irregularly almost with a sighing sound condensed in the wintry air. When he reached his house he went up at once to his bedroom and taking the paper from his pocket read the paragraph again by the failing light of the window. He read it not aloud but moving his lips as a priest does when he reads the prayers, secreto. This was the paragraph. Death of a lady at Sydney Parade. A painful case. Today at the City of Dublin Hospital, the Deputy Coroner, in the absence of Mr Leverett, held an inquest on the body of Mrs Emily Sinico, aged 43 years, who was killed at Sydney Parade station yesterday evening the evidence showed that the deceased lady, while attempting to cross the line, was knocked down by the engine of the ten o'clock slow train from Kingstown, thereby sustaining injuries of the head and right side, which led to her death. James Lennon, driver of the engine, stated that he had been in the employment of the railway company for fifteen years. On hearing the guard's whistle, he set the train in motion, and a second or two afterwards brought it to rest in response to loud cries, The train was going slowly. P. Dunn, railway porter, stated that as the train was about to start, he observed a woman attempting to cross the lines. He ran towards her and shouted, but before he could reach her, she was caught by the buffer of the engine and fell to the ground. A juror... You saw the lady fall? Witness? Yes. Police Sergeant Crowley deposed that when he arrived, he found the deceased lying on the platform apparently dead. He had the body taken to the waiting room pending the arrival of the ambulance. Constable 57E corroborated. Dr. Halpin, assistant house surgeon of the City of Dublin Hospital, stated that the deceased had two lower ribs fractured and had sustained severe contusions of the right shoulder. The right side of the head had been injured in the fall. The injuries were not sufficient to have caused death in a normal person. Death, in his opinion, had been probably due to shock and sudden failure of the heart's action. Mr. H.B. Patterson Finlay, on behalf of the railway company, expressed his deep regret at the accident. The company had always taken every precaution to prevent people crossing the lines except by the bridges, both by placing notices in every station and by the use of patent spring gates at level crossings. The deceased had been in the habit of crossing the lines late at night from platform to platform and in view of certain other circumstances of the case, he did not think the railway officials were to blame. Captain Sinico of Leoville, Sydney Parade, husband of the deceased, also gave evidence. He stated that the deceased was his wife. He was not in Dublin at the time of the accident, as he had arrived only that morning from Rotterdam. They had been married for twenty-two years and had lived happily until about two years ago when his wife began to be rather intemperate in her habits. Miss Mary Sinico said that of late her mother had been in the habit of going out at night to buy spirits. She, witness, had often tried to reason with her mother and had induced her to join a league. She was not at home until an hour after the accident. The jury returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence and exonerated Lennon from all blame. The deputy coroner said it was a most painful case and expressed great sympathy with Captain Sinico and his daughter. He urged on the railway company to take strong measures to prevent the possibility of similar accidents in the future, no blame attached to anyone. Mr. Duffy raised his eyes from the paper and gazed out of his window on the cheerless evening landscape. The river lay quiet beside the empty distillery, and from time to time a light appeared in some house on the Lucan Road. What an end! The whole narrative of her death revolted him, and it revolted him to think that he had ever spoken to her of what he held sacred. The threadbare phrases, the inane expressions of sympathy, the cautious words of a reporter won over to conceal the details of a commonplace, vulgar death, attacked his stomach. Not merely had she degraded herself, she had degraded him, he saw the squalid tract of her vice, miserable and malodorous. His soul's companion! He thought of the hobbling wretches whom he had seen carrying cans and bottles to be filled by the barman. Just God! what an end! Evidently she had been unfit to live, without any strength of purpose, an easy prey to habits, one of the wrecks on which civilization has been reared but that she could have sunk so low. Was it possible he had deceived himself so utterly about her? He remembered her outburst of that night and interpreted it in a harsher sense than he had ever done. He had no difficulty now in approving of the course he had taken. As the light failed and his memory began to wander, he thought her hand touched his. The shock which had at first attacked his stomach was now attacking his nerves, he put on his overcoat and hat quickly and went out. The cold air met him on the threshold. It crept into the sleeves of his coat. When he came to the public house at Chapel Lizard Bridge, he went in and ordered a hot punch. The proprietor served him obsequiously, but did not venture to talk. There were five or six working men in the shop discussing the value of a gentleman's estate in County Kildare. They drank at intervals from their huge pint tumblers and smoked, spitting often on the floor and sometimes dragging the sawdust over their spits with their heavy boots. Mr Duffy sat on his stool and gazed at them without seeing or hearing them. After a while they went out and he called for another punch. He sat a long time over it. The shop was very quiet. The proprietor sprawled on the counter reading the herald and yawning. Now and again a tram was heard, swishing along the lonely road outside. As he sat there, living over his life with her, and evoking alternately the two images in which he now conceived her, he realised that she was dead, that she had ceased to exist, that she had become a memory. He began to feel ill at ease. He asked himself, what else could he have done? He could not have carried on a comedy of deception with her, He could not have lived with her openly. He had done what seemed to him best. How was he to blame? Now that she was gone, he understood how lonely her life must have been, sitting night after night alone in that room. His life would be lonely too, until he too died, ceased to exist, became a memory, if anyone remembered him. It was after nine o'clock when he left the shop. The night was cold and gloomy. He entered the park by the first gate and walked along under the gaunt trees. He walked through the bleak alleys where they had walked four years before. She seemed to be near him in the darkness. At moments he seemed to feel her voice touch his ear, her hand touch his. He stood still to listen. Why had he withheld life from her? Why had he sentenced her to death? he felt his moral nature falling to pieces. When he gained the crest of the magazine hill, he halted and looked along the river towards Dublin, the lights of which burned redly and hospitably in the cold night. He looked down the slope, and at the base, in the shadow of the wall of the park, he saw some human figures lying. Those venal and furtive loves filled him with despair. He gnawed the rectitude of his life, he felt that he had been outcast from life's feast one human being had seemed to love him and he had denied her life and happiness he had sentenced her to ignominy a death of shame he knew that the prostrate creatures down by the wall were watching him and wished him gone no one wanted him he was outcast from life's feast he turned his eyes to the gray gleaming river winding along towards dublin Beyond the river, he saw a goods train winding out of Kingsbridge Station, like a worm with a fiery head winding through the darkness, obstinately and laboriously. It passed slowly out of sight. But still he heard in his ears the laborious drone of the engine, reiterating the syllables of her
1: name.
2: He turned back the way he had come, the rhythm of the engine pounding in his ears. He began to doubt the reality of what memory told him. He halted under a tree and allowed the rhythm to die away. He could not feel her near him in the darkness, nor her voice touch his ear. He waited for some minutes, listening. He could hear nothing. The night was perfectly silent he listened again perfectly silent he felt that he was alone
0: We've been listening to A Painful Case by James Joyce. Mrs Emily Sinico was played by Colette Proctor. The various parts of jurors and witnesses were played by members of the Radio Air and Players. A Painful Case by James Joyce was narrated by Conor Farrington. The producer was William Stiles. Drama on One. Sundays
1: at 8pm. RTA.ie forward slash drama on one.
0: Drama on One. Mrs Carney is a practical woman. She respects her husband in the same way she respects the general post office as something large, secure and fixed. Though she knows the small number of his talents, she appreciates his abstract value as a male. Her daughter, Miss Kathleen Kearney, however, is a talented pianist. Mrs Kearney enters into a contract with Mr Holohan, whereupon Kathleen plays four concerts at the ancient concert rooms. When advances and attendances are less than expected, contractual revisions are suggested, but rejected. Mrs. Kearney will have her bond. Will a standoff result in a stalemate? This is a mother by James Joyce.
2: Mr. Holohan, Assistant Secretary of the Era Abu Society, had been walking up and down Dublin for nearly a month with his hands and pockets full of dirty pieces of paper, arranging about the series of concerts. He had a game leg, and for this his friends called him Hoppy Holohan. He walked up and down constantly, stood by the hour at street corners, arguing the point, and made notes. But in the end it was Mrs. Carney who arranged everything. Miss Devlin had become Mrs. Carney out of spite, she had been educated in a high-class convent where she had learned French and music. As she was naturally pale and unbending in manner, she made few friends at school. When she came to the age of marriage, she was sent out to many houses where her playing and ivory manners were much admired. She sat amid the chilly circle of her accomplishments, waiting for some suitor to brave it and offer her a brilliant life. But the young men whom she met were ordinary, and she gave them no encouragement, trying to console her romantic desires by eating a great deal of Turkish delight in secret. However, when she drew near the limit, and her friends began to loosen their tongues about her, she silenced them by marrying Mr Kearney, who was a bootmaker on Ormond Quay. He was much older than she. His conversation, which was serious, took place at intervals in his great brown beard. After the first year of married life... Mrs. Kearney perceived that such a man would wear better than a romantic person, but she never put her own romantic ideas away. He was sober, thrifty, and pious. He went to the altar every first Friday, sometimes with her, oftener by himself, but she never weakened in her religion and was a good wife to him. At some party in a strange house, when she lifted her eyebrow ever so slightly, he stood up to take his leave, and when his cough troubled him, she put the eiderdown quilt over his feet and made a strong rum punch. For his part, he was a model father. By paying a small sum every week into a society, he insured for both his daughters a dowry of £100 each when they came to the age of 24. He sent the elder daughter Kathleen to a good convent, where she learned French and music, and afterwards paid her fees at the academy. Every year in the month of July, Mrs Carney found occasion to say to some friend,
1: my good man is packing us off to scaries for a few weeks.
2: If it was not scaries, it was Hoth or greystones. When the Irish revival began to be appreciable, Mrs Kearney determined to take advantage of her daughter's name and brought an Irish teacher to the house. Kathleen and her sister sent Irish picture postcards to their friends, and these friends sent back other Irish picture postcards. On special Sundays, when Mr Kearney went with his family to the Pro Cathedral, a little crowd of people would assemble after Mass at the corner of Cathedral Street. They were all friends of the Kearneys, musical friends or nationalist friends, and when they had played every little counter of gossip, they shook hands with one another all together, laughing at the crossing of so many hands, and said goodbye to one another in Irish. Soon the name of Miss Kathleen Carney began to be heard often on people's lips. People said that she was very clever at music, and a very nice girl, and, moreover, that she was a believer in the language movement. Mrs. Kearney was well content at this. Therefore she was not surprised when one day Mr. Holohan came to her and proposed that her daughter should be the accompanist at a series of four grand concerts which his society was going to give in the ancient concert rooms. She brought him into the drawing-room, made him sit down, and brought out the decanter and the silver biscuit-barrel. She entered heart and soul into the details of the enterprise, advised and dissuaded, and finally a contract was drawn up by which Kathleen was to receive eight guineas for her services as accompanist at the four grand concerts. As Mr. Holohan was a novice in such delicate matters as the wording of bills and the disposing of items for a programme, Mrs. Carney helped him. She had tact. She knew what artistes should go into capitals and what artistes should go into small type. She knew that the first tenor would not like to come on after Mr. Mead's comic turn. To keep the audience continually diverted, she slipped the doubtful items in between the old favourites. Mr. Holohan called to see her every day to have her advice on some point. She was invariably friendly and advising, homely in fact. She pushed the decanter towards him, saying,
1: Now help yourself, Mr. Holohan.
2: And while he was helping himself, she said,
1: Don't be afraid, don't be afraid of it.
2: Everything went on smoothly. Mrs Kearney bought some lovely blush-pink charmeurs in brown Thomas's to let into the front of Kathleen's dress. It cost a pretty penny, but there are occasions when a little expense is justifiable. She took a dozen of 2 shilling tickets for the final concert and sent them to those friends who could not be trusted to come otherwise. She forgot nothing, and thanks to her, everything that was to be done was done. The concerts were to be on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. When Mrs. Carney arrived with her daughter at the ancient concert rooms on Wednesday night, she did not like the look of things. A few young men wearing bright blue badges in their coats stood idle in the vestibule. None of them wore evening dress. She passed by with her daughter and a quick glance through the open door of the hall showed her the cause of the steward's idleness. At first she wondered had she mistaken the hour. No, it was twenty minutes to eight. In the dressing room behind the stage, she was introduced to the secretary of the society, Mr Fitzpatrick. She smiled and shook his hand. He was a little man with a white, vacant face. She noticed that he wore his soft brown hat carelessly on the side of his head, and that his accent was flat. He held a programme in his hand, and while he was talking to her, he chewed one end of it into a moist pulp he seemed to bear disappointments lightly. Mr Holhan came into the dressing room every few minutes with reports from the box office. The artistes talked among themselves nervously, glanced from time to time at the mirror and rolled and unrolled their music. When it was nearly half past eight, the few people in the hall began to express their desire to be entertained. Mr Fitzpatrick came in, smiled vacantly at the room and said, ''Well now, ladies and gentlemen, I suppose we'd better open the ball." Mrs Kearney rewarded his very flat final syllable with a quick stare of contempt and then said to her daughter encouragingly,
1: Are you ready, dear?
2: When she had an opportunity, she called Mr Holohan aside and asked him to tell her what it meant. Mr Holohan did not know what it meant. He said that the committee had made a mistake in arranging for four concerts. Four was too many.
1: And the artists?
2: Said Mrs Kearney. Of
1: course they are doing their best, but really they are not
2: good Mr. Holhan admitted that the artistes were no good, but the committee, he said, had decided to let the first three concerts go as they pleased and reserve all the talent for Saturday night. Mrs. Carney said nothing, but as the mediocre items followed one another on the platform and the few people in the hall grew fewer and fewer, she began to regret that she had put herself to any expense for such a concert. There was something she didn't like in the look of things, and Mr. Fitzpatrick's vacant smile irritated her very much. However, she said nothing, and waited to see how it would end. The concert expired shortly before ten, and everyone went home quickly. The concert on Thursday night was better attended, but Mrs Kearney saw at once that the house was filled with paper. The audience behaved indecorously, as if the concert were an informal dress rehearsal. Mr Fitzpatrick seemed to enjoy himself. He was quite unconscious that Mrs Kearney was taking angry note of his conduct, He stood at the edge of the screen, from time to time jutting out his head and exchanging a laugh with two friends in the corner of the balcony. In the course of the evening, Mrs. Carney learned that the Friday concert was to be abandoned and that the committee was going to move heaven and earth to secure a bumper house on Saturday night. When she heard this, she sought out Mr. Holohan. She buttonholed him as he was limping out quickly with a glass of lemonade for a young lady and asked him, was it true? Yes, it was true.
1: But, of course, that doesn't alter the contract, she said. The contract was for four concerts.
2: Mr. Holohan seemed to be in a hurry. He advised her to speak to Mr. Fitzpatrick. Mrs. Carney was now beginning to be alarmed. She called Mr. Fitzpatrick away from his screen and told him that her daughter had signed for four concerts and that, of course, according to the terms of the contract, she should receive the sum originally stipulated for whether the Society gave the four concerts or not. Mr. Fitzpatrick who did not catch the pointed issue very quickly, seemed unable to resolve the difficulty and said that he would bring the matter before the committee. Mrs Kearney's anger began to flutter in her cheek and she had all she could do to keep from asking,
1: And who is the committee, pray?
2: But she knew that it would not be ladylike to do that, so she was silent. Little boys were sent out into the principal streets of Dublin early on Friday morning with bundles of handbills, Special puffs appeared in all the evening papers, reminding the music-loving public of the treat which was in store for it on the following evening. Mrs Carney was somewhat reassured, but she thought well to tell her husband part of her suspicions. He listened carefully and said that perhaps it would be better if he went with her on Saturday night. She agreed. She respected her husband in the same way as she respected the General Post Office, as something large, secure and fixed and though she knew the small number of his talents, she appreciated his abstract value as a male. She was glad that he had suggested coming with her. She thought her plans over. The night of the grand concert came. Mrs. Kearney, with her husband and daughter, arrived at the ancient concert rooms three quarters of an hour before the time at which the concert was to begin. By ill luck, it was a rainy evening. Mrs. Kearney placed her daughter's clothes and music in charge of her husband, and went all over the building looking for Mr. Holohan or Mr. Fitzpatrick. She could find neither. She asked the stewards was any member of the committee in the hall, and after a great deal of trouble, a steward brought out a little woman named Miss Byrne, to whom Mrs. Carney explained that she wanted to see one of the secretaries. Miss Byrne expected them at any minute, and asked could she do anything. Mrs. Carney looked searchingly at the oldish face, which was screwed into an expression of trustfulness and enthusiasm, and answered,
1: No, thank you.
2: The little woman hoped they would have a good house. She looked out at the rain until the melancholy of the wet street effaced all the trustfulness and enthusiasm from her twisted features. Then she gave a little sigh and said,
1: Ah, well, we did our best, the dear knows.
2: Mrs Carney had to go back to the dressing room. The artistes were arriving. The bass and the second tenor had already come. The bass, Mr Duggan, was a slender young man with a scattered black moustache. He was the son of a hall porter in an office in the city, and, as a boy, he had sung prolonged bass notes in the resounding hall. From this humble state he had raised himself until he had become a first-rate artiste. He had appeared in grand opera. One night, when an operatic artiste had fallen ill, he had undertaken the part of the king in the opera of Maritana at the Queen's Theatre. He sang his music with great feeling and volume and was warmly welcomed by the gallery but unfortunately he marred the good impression by wiping his nose in his gloved hand once or twice out of thoughtlessness. He was unassuming and spoke little. He said, use, so softly that it passed unnoticed, and he never drank anything stronger than milk for his voice's sake. Mr Bell, the second tenor, was a fair-haired little man who competed every year for prizes at the Fesh On his fourth trial he had been awarded a bronze medal. He was extremely nervous and extremely jealous of other tenors, and he covered his nervous jealousy with an ebullient friendliness. It was his humour to have people know what an ordeal a concert was to him. Therefore, when he saw Mr. Duggan, he went over to him and asked,
1: (laughs) Are you in it too?
2: (laughs) Yes, said Mr. Duggan. Mr. Bell laughed at his fellow sufferer, held out his hand and said, Shake. Mrs. Kearney passed by these two young men and went to the edge of the screen to view the house. The seats were being filled up rapidly, and a pleasant noise circulated in the auditorium. She came back and spoke to her husband privately. Their conversation was evidently about Kathleen, for they both glanced at her often as she stood chatting to one of her nationalist friends, Miss Healy the Contralto. An unknown, solitary woman with a pale face walked through the room. The women followed with keen eyes the faded blue dress which was stretched upon a meagre body. Someone said that she was Madame Glynn the Soprano.
1: I wonder where did they dig her up?'
2: said Kathleen to Miss Healy.
1: "'I'm sure I never heard of her.'
2: Miss Healy had to smile. Mr. Holohan limped into the dressing-room at that moment, and the two young ladies asked him who was the unknown woman. Mr. Holohan said that she was Madam Glynn from London. Madam Glynn took her stand in a corner of the room, holding a roll of music stiffly before her, and from time to time changing the direction of her startled gaze. The shadow took her faded dress into shelter, but fell revengefully into the little cup behind her collarbone. The noise of the hall became more audible. The first tenor and the baritone arrived together. They were both well-dressed, stout and complacent, and they brought a breath of opulence among the company. Mrs Kearney brought her daughter over to them and talked to them amiably. She wanted to be on good terms with them, but while she strove to be polite, her eyes followed Mr Holohan in his limping and devious courses. As soon as she could, she excused herself and went out after him.
1: Mr. Holohan, I want to speak to you for a moment,
2: she said. They went down to a discreet part of the corridor. Mrs. Carney asked him when was her daughter going to be paid. Mr. Holohan said that Mr. Fitzpatrick had charge of that. Mrs. Carney said that she didn't know anything about Mr. Fitzpatrick. Her daughter had signed a contract for eight guineas and she would have to be paid. Mr. Holohan said that it wasn't his business.
1: Why isn't it your business?
2: asked Mrs. Carney.
1: Didn't you yourself bring her the contract? Anyway, if it's not your business, it's my business, and I mean to see to it. You'd
2: better speak to
1: Mr. Fitzpatrick,
2: said Mr. Holohan distantly.
1: I don't know anything about Mr. Fitzpatrick,
2: repeated Mrs. Carney.
1: I have my contract, and I intend to see that it is carried out.
2: When she came back to the dressing room, her cheeks were slightly suffused. The room was lively. Two men in outdoor dress had taken possession of the fireplace and were chatting familiarly with Miss Healy and the baritone. They were the Freeman man and Mr. O'Madden Burke. The Freeman man had come in to say that he could not wait for the concert as he had to report the lecture which an American priest was giving in the mansion house. He said they were to leave the report for him at the Freeman office and he would see that it went in. He was a grey-haired man with a plausible voice and careful manners he held an extinguished cigar in his hand and the aroma of cigar smoke floated near him. He had not intended to stay a moment because concerts and artists bored him considerably, but he remained leaning against the mantelpiece. Miss Healy stood in front of him, talking and laughing. He was old enough to suspect one reason for her politeness, but young enough in spirit to turn the moment to account. The warmth, fragrance and colour of her body appealed to his senses. He was pleasantly conscious that the bosom which he saw rise and fall slowly beneath him rose and fell at that moment for him, that the laughter and fragrance and willful glances were his tribute. When he could stay no longer, he took leave of her regretfully. Oh, well, Madden Burke will write the notice, he explained to Mr. Holohen. And I'll see it in. Thank you very much, Mr. Hendrick, said Mr. Holhan. You'll see it in, I know. Now, won't you have a little something before you go? I don't mind, said Mr. Hendrick. The two men went along some tortuous passages and up a dark staircase and came to a secluded room where one of the stewards was uncorking bottles for a few gentlemen. One of these gentlemen was Mr. O'Madden Burke, who had found out the room by instinct. He was a suave, elderly man who balanced his imposing body, when at rest, upon a large silk umbrella. His magniloquent Western name was the moral umbrella upon which he balanced the fine problem of his finances. He was widely respected while mr Holohan was entertaining the freeman man mrs carney was speaking so animatedly to her husband that he had to ask her to lower her voice the conversation of the others in the dressing room had become strained mr bell the first item stood ready with his music but the accompanist made no sign evidently something was wrong mr carney looked straight before him stroking his beard while Mrs. Carney spoke into Kathleen's ear with subdued emphasis. From the hall came sounds of encouragement, clapping and stamping of feet. The first tenor and the baritone and Miss Healy stood together, waiting tranquilly, but Mr. Bell's nerves were greatly agitated because he was afraid the audience would think that he had come late. Mr. Holohan and Mr. O'Madden Burke came into the room. In a moment, Mr. Holohan perceived the hush he went over to Mrs Carney and spoke with her earnestly. While they were speaking, the noise in the hall grew louder. Mr Holohan became very red and excited. He spoke volubly, but Mrs Carney said curtly at intervals,
1: She won't go on. She must get her eight guineas.
2: Mr Holohan pointed desperately towards the hall where the audience was clapping and stamping. He appealed to Mr Carney and to Kathleen, but Mr Carney continued to stroke his beard and Kathleen looked down, moving the point of her new shoe. It was not her fault. Mrs. Carney repeated,
1: She won't go on without her money.
2: After a swift struggle of tongues, Mr. Holohan hobbled out in haste. The room was silent. When the strain of the silence had become somewhat painful, Miss Healy said to the baritone,
1: Have you seen Mrs. Pat Campbell this week?
2: The baritone had not seen her, but he had been told that she was very fine. The conversation went no further. The first tenor bent his head and began to count the links of the gold chain which was extended across his waist, smiling and humming random notes to observe the effect on the frontal sinus. From time to time, everyone glanced at Mrs Kearney. The noise in the auditorium had risen to a clamour when Mr Fitzpatrick burst into the room, followed by Mr Holohan, who was panting. The clapping and stamping in the hall was punctuated by whistling, Mr. Fitzpatrick held a few banknotes in his hand. He counted out four into Mrs. Carney's hand and said she would get the other half at the interval. Mrs. Carney said,
1: This is four shillings short.
2: But Kathleen gathered in her skirt and said,
1: Now, Mr. Bell,
2: to the first item who was shaking like an aspen. The singer and the accompanist went out together. The noise in the hall died away. There was a pause of a few seconds and then the piano was heard. The first part of the concert was very successful, except for Madame Glynn's item. The poor lady sang Killarney in a bodiless, gasping voice, with all the old-fashioned mannerisms of intonation and pronunciation which she believed lent elegance to her singing. She looked as if she had been resurrected from an old stage wardrobe, and the cheaper parts of the hall made fun of her high, wailing notes. The first tenor and the contralto, however, brought down the house. Kathleen played a selection of Irish airs, which was generously applauded. The first part closed with a stirring, patriotic recitation delivered by a young lady who arranged amateur theatricals. It was deservedly applauded, and when it was ended, the men went out for the interval content. All this time, the dressing-room was a hive of excitement. In one corner were Mr. Holohan, Mr. Fitzpatrick, Miss Byrne, two of the stewards, the baritone, the bass and Mr. O'Madden Burke. Mr. O'Madden Burke said it was the most scandalous exhibition he had ever witnessed. Miss Kathleen Carney's musical career was ended in Dublin after that, he said. The baritone was asked what did he think of Mrs. Carney's conduct. He did not like to say anything. He had been paid his money and wished to be at peace with men. However, he said, that Mrs. Carney might have taken the artistes into consideration, The stewards and the secretaries debated hotly as to what should be done when the interval came. I agree with Miss Byrne, said Mr O'Madden Burke. Pay her nothing. In another corner of the room were Mrs Carney and her husband, Mr Bell, Miss Healy, and the young lady who had to recite the patriotic piece. Mrs Carney said that the committee had treated her scandalously. She had spared neither trouble nor expense, and this was how she was repaid. They thought they had only a girl to deal with, and that, therefore, they could ride roughshod over her. But she would show them their mistake. They wouldn't have dared to have treated her like that if she had been a man. But she would see that her daughter got her rights. She wouldn't be fooled. If they didn't pay her to the last farthing, she would make Dublin ring. Of course, she was sorry for the sake of the artists, but what else could she do? She appealed to the second tenor, who said he thought she had not been well treated. Then she appealed to Miss Healy, Miss Healy wanted to join the other group, but she did not like to do so because she was a great friend of Kathleen's, and the Carnies had often invited her to their house. As soon as the first part was ended, Mr Fitzpatrick and Mr Holohan went over to Mrs Carney and told her that the other four guineas would be paid after the committee meeting on the following Tuesday, and that in case her daughter did not play for the second part, the committee would consider the contract broken and would pay nothing.'
1: I haven't seen any committee,
2: said Mrs. Kearney angrily.
1: My daughter has her contract. She will get 4 pounds eight into her hand or a foot she won't put on that platform.
2: I'm surprised at you, Mrs. Kearney, said Mr. Holohan.
1: I never thought you would treat us this way. And what way did you treat me,
2: asked Mrs. Kearney. Her face was inundated with an angry colour and she looked as if she would attack someone with her hands.
1: I'm asking for my rights, she said. You might have some sense of... Decent,"
2: said Mr. Holohan.
1: Might I indeed? And when I ask when my daughter is going to be paid, I can't get a civil answer.
2: She tossed her head and assumed a haughty voice.
1: You must speak to the secretary. It's not my business. I'm a great fellow, folded in Lido. I thought
2: you were a lady, said Mr. Holohan, walking away from her abruptly. After that, Mrs. Carney's conduct was condemned on all hands. Everyone approved of what the committee had done she stood at the door haggard with rage, arguing with her husband and daughter, gesticulating with them. She waited until it was time for the second part to begin in the hope that the secretaries would approach her, but Miss Healy had kindly consented to play one or two accompaniments. Mrs Kearney had to stand aside to allow the baritone and his accompanist to pass up to the platform. She stood still for an instant like an angry stone image, and when the first notes of the song struck her ear, she caught up her daughter's cloak and said to her husband...
1: Get a cab!
2: He went out at once. Mrs. Carney wrapped the cloak round her daughter and followed him. As she passed through the doorway, she stopped and glared into Mr. Holohan's face.
1: I'm not done with you yet,
2: she said. But I'm done with you, said Mr. Holohan. Kathleen followed her mother meekly. Mr. Holohan began to pace up and down the room in order to cool himself, for he felt his skin on fire
1: that's a nice lady he said oh she's a nice lady you did the proper thing holland
2: said mr o'madden burke poised upon his umbrella in approval
0: that was a mother by james joyce NASA Nyarukon played Mrs. Carney, and Miss Kathleen Carney was Kate Minogue. Jim Reid was Mr. Fitzpatrick. Mr. Holohan was played by Peter Dix, and Brandon O'Dool was Omadden Burke. Other parts were played by members of the Radio Aaron Players. A Mother by James Joyce was narrated by Conor Farrington, and the producer was William Stiles. And if you'd like to hear these and previous stories from Dubliners, so or you just can't wait to binge on the box set, you can listen to and download all 15 stories and more besides on rte.ie slash Ulysses or on the Drama on One website. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm.
1: rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama
0: on One.